Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so thrilled and excited today for our guest, Dr. Patrick Sullivan. He is a professor at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, in the the United States. He has 22 years of experience in HIV epidemiology and prevention, with a large focus on gay, bisexual, and other menu of sex with men in the United States and in international settings. He also worked in the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention for 12 years. He has so many grants I can't wait to hear more about, focusing on improving methods for online HIV prevention studies. Patrick, welcome today. We're so happy to have you. Thanks, Carmen. I'm very excited to be here. So I've just given a really brief overview, and you are doing so many things. If I bump into you in an elevator, let's say post-vaccination, when we're all comfortable hanging out in elevators, what is your elevator pitch to describe what you do? It's amazing that we're 40 years into the HIV epidemic and we still struggle with the issues that we identified early on and particularly this disproportionate impact of HIV and gay and bisexual men. In 2018, uh, almost 70% of new infections were in gay and bisexual men. So I would say the focus of my work is both trying to use data to understand if we if we take gay and bisexual men as a as a group it's important to say that there are groups within that or intersectional identities and not everyone's prevention needs are the same so first how can we use data to understand the where the who and what the needs are and then how can we use technology to address those needs in ways that are convenient respect privacy and maybe even open up access to services to men who may be living in environments where uh, where they don't feel safe or where it's not safe to seek those in, in brick and mortar locations. So if that was an elevator speech, we just like got to the top of the tallest building in the world. Sorry, it's a little long. <laughs> Actually, I usually say an origin story of how I know someone or met somebody. So I also just want the listeners to know, first of all, I, I've heard about you way before I met you in Ireland, in Dublin, really briefly. And then I was so fortunate about a year and a half ago, I was um, at Hopkins doing a Fulbright chair for my sabbatical. And you kindly invited me, um, or maybe I invited myself, one of the two. And uh, to visit your wonderful center, I wanted the listeners, and I'm going to have a link to this, to learn about your PRISM Center, which stands for Programs, Research, and Innovation in Sexual Minority Health. And it is gorgeous. And your whole 
faculty, you took me on this tour and it's just like really cool where you live. So I don't mind riding an elevator because you, I had never been to Atlanta and I was like, oh, this is cool. This is really gorgeous. And the whole area is like really green. And I just also wanted the listeners to, to, to know you have the center and that it's fun to ride in an elevator with you because you're very interesting and because you might be going to the top because we went to this top of your building, right? And it was like... That's right. That's right. And looked out over the the neighborhoods and the greenery of Atlanta towards downtown. I remember. Which I'm quite I'm jealous of now in snowy Toronto. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> yeah, take you up on that. Um, so I'm actually going to show up to your house right now in my time machine. And my time machine has space for physically distancing. <laughs> and I'm going to say, Patrick, you are really passionate about the health and well-being and HIV prevention needs of gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. And you're interested in technology. Where where do you take me in this time machine where you started being interested in maybe gay men's health or technology in gay men's health or HIV? And the time machine can have multiple stopovers, so. Okay, it's a great question. Um, so I, uh, sort of came into this field from really a, a lab science background where my PhD was a, a bench science PhD and I came to CDC to work in a laboratory that happened to be situated within the division of HIV AIDS prevention. And so my initial connection was around more of the lab aspects and, and some of the blood problems that were being experienced by people living with HIV uh, I mean, this is back in the early 90s um, when therapies were just coming online. But I quickly became interested in in the data aspects and working with surveillance data and just the power of being able to depict an epidemic in terms that relate to what we need to do about it. And one of the first things I was assigned to do was to examine the U.S. national surveillance data on the AIDS cases and deaths in men who have sex with men. And the black-white disparity in both cases and in deaths already at that time was just um, staggering. And I think that really was the foundation of, of this theme through, through my professional interest, which is these sort of nested health inequities. And so for gay and bisexual men who you know, are 150 times more likely to be living with HIV than than heterosexual adults in the United States. And then, and that's such a massive health disparity. And then even within that, we have sort of four to one, six to one, eight to one disparities where black gay and bisexual men and Hispanic gay and bisexual men are, are further disproportionately impacted. And so that for me is just sort of touches on everything we, as people, you know, should aspire to, which is sort of the, uh, of equity and health and, and freedom from discrimination and the, the opportunity to make our way through life and do what we want to do. And so I think for gay and bisexual men, there are these layers. It's changed over my lifetime. I'm, I'm 54 years old. I'm, you know, ha like happy to um, say. And through my lifetime, some of the structural elements of discrimination towards gay and bisexual people in the United States have have changed. When I moved to Georgia and I was an undergraduate at Emory University, there were sodomy laws in Georgia. Wow. And so I, I've seen sort of 
the change in the legal climate. I was able to get get married to my husband after 20 years of living together when marriage wasn't legal. Congratulations. How long have you guys been married? Thank you. Um, well, uh, we count 20, 27 years uh, that we've been together wow. and um, and just now nine, I guess, legally. So or, uh, according to the cool. laws of, you know, the great state of Vermont. Amazing. So next year is a big, a big tenure. Okay. That's right. I, I will. Um, if you can help, uh, help make sure that I plan in advance to do something spectacular for that. Something good. spectacular yeah. has to happen. Anyway, so but but I, I think these things are not disconnected. Like in terms of health health inequities, and we've done work to ask why you know, are gay and bisexual men more impacted? And there's biology things. There's things about like the mucosa of, of where we have sex. And there's things about the access to health services or or the role of disclosure. But but the societal inequities actually totally played into that because it meant that the places where men could meet partners of any kind, meet social partners, <laughs> sexual partners, were constrained because we were living with the understanding that our behaviors were criminalized. And so it's incongruous to, to both try and create environments where people feel valued, they feel that their health is valued, they feel empowered to take steps to protect themselves, when at the same time, normal parts of human existence in this sexual expression is criminalized. And so, I, you know, I'm happy, I, I, I don't want to say too lightly or, or not, you know, fully acknowledge my privilege to live in a place where I'm not criminalized because part of our challenge in HIV prevention globally is that these environments still exist. So I'll just to say, like, I, I came to this through looking at data, but have come to understand that the work that, that we're engaged in around trying to improve the health of gay and bisexual men living with HIV or not living with HIV is part and parcel of a bigger, you know, um, package of, of human rights and, and freedom from discrimination. And again, just feel looking at the trajectory of, of what I've done. Um, I mean, in a way, the technology become tools that in some ways can, can mitigate some of those stressors. And we, we are working in our group and my colleague, Jed Jones is, is, uh, you know, leading work on how we, we reach out in, in rural areas where, you know, we know that, that gay and bisexual men who live in rural areas are substantially less likely to have gotten an HIV test in the last year, so less likely to have gotten an STI test, less likely to have received free condoms, mm-hmm. you know, uh, less likely to be on PrEP. And, and that's for a variety of reasons. And part of those are just distance, like they may have a longer distance to drive to get a service like PrEP. But also we know just from talking to men in focus groups and to men uh, who are in our research studies that it can be a barrier if you live in a small place and you want to get an HIV test um, and it hasn't been offered routinely or you want to get PrEP and there's, there is one, you know, community health center, one clinic and, and your aunt or the, the, the best friend of your next door neighbor works in that clinic. That's a real disincentive to go and there's a real vulnerability mm-hmm. there. So I think these e-health tools like mobile phone apps, stuff, telemedicine through the internet has the opportunity to bring services that can be really culturally competent, that can address the range of issues that someone might be um, dealing with and do that in a way that feels safer and more confidential. I, I really love that focus. I mean, I think, 
you're one of the most innovative researchers I've I've ever met. And I, I grew up in a rural area. I'm from a small town. And now I work in many places, but one of them is in the Arctic region in Canada, which mm. LGBTQ people literally said that, what you just said, like, my mom's friend works at the one clinic. Like, I can't go there or my aunt or somebody. There's no confidentiality to access these resources for our sexual and reproductive health. So I, mm-hmm. I love that you're expanding expanding the access. You know, when I grew up, there wasn't really the internet. <laughs> I feel like I must be so old. But, you know, I'm in my 40s and I, really the internet didn't really come when I was a teenager. It wasn't until I was in my 20s. Um, we, we, should, we should insert a, a little sound of a <laughs> dial-up modem and see how many of your listeners just think like that the, 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 the like podcast just fritzed out. But there was, a, you could, you could get the internet was very slow and and there's this funky noise that started before you had a dialogue. Yes. Before. You know yeah. what? I think that the producer is going to add one of those sounds right now. I, I'm, I'm going to come back for the whole thing, but, but especially for that. <laughs> so that is, you just really, I think, laid out such a, a wonderful overview of why stigma matters today. And you, you sort of brought up a few different aspects of stigma to consider. One of them is the continued stigma that gay and bisexual men face. And then you also brought in racial disparities. So I might ask you a little bit more about that. And then you also brought in another level, which I'm really happy you brought in because I haven't had many podcast guests speak to the rural um, issues experienced by LGBTQ people in general. Could you, you know, talk a little bit more for the listeners about the role that you think that stigma discrimination play in racial disparities in HIV for gay and bisexual and other men of sex with men that you work with, what that looks like, at least in the U.S. context or other contexts? Sure. It's just interesting to, to see how, as we develop public health information, how it can drive policy, but also how it can um, act to the detriment of public health. So I, I remember when we uh, first started, when I was at CDC working in developing a program of national HIV behavioral surveillance and, and where we went out in I think 26 cities and recruited gay and bisexual men in different kinds of venues and offered HIV testing. And one of the findings of that was this, you know, disparate high prevalence of HIV in, in black gay and bisexual men. And I, I remember it, the prevalence was 44%. Wow. And I remember this because uh, at the time, there was a series um, called Noah's Ark that was about this group of um, black gay men living in the U.S. who like met and dealt with challenges. And, and I, we watched it faithfully. And there was a scene where the lead character Noah is on, which is also my son's name, just like coincidentally with Noah's on this like exercise machine and talking to a friend. And he said, you know, I heard that 44 percent of, you know, black gay men are living with HIV. And I thought, like, that's our that's our NHPS number, wow. you know, a, a shocking, a shocking number. <laughs> and and I think that 44 percent number and then and then the updates to it have really like there's a broad awareness of the disproportionate impact of HIV among among black gay and bisexual men, which we need to advocate for programs and to, to make sure that you know, people are accurately assessing their risk and that we're, you know, putting the right resources into response. However, it's, it's double-sided in a couple of ways because I, I need, we know from, um, from published literature, from qualitative work, from talking to our own participants, that there's a stigma in the gay community that may put higher suspicion of HIV status onto black men 
and that becomes a dynamic in how people talk about HIV. And, and so I think that again, is just sort of like, so the awareness is great. And then the, the sort of stigma, even within the gay community that comes back at presumptions, um, frustrates the kind of conversations we need to have, which are open conversations about people's HIV status. And for when, when people want to, uh, have a sexual relationship, how they're going to manage that, you know, the other, you know, way in which I think we've seen this to shape out is that at least historically, and, and as the last time we measured this, that the, the sexual networks of, of gay and bisexual men tend to be concordant around race. There's there's a, a higher degree of um, sort of same race uh, partnerships. And so we think about um, what perpetuates this high prevalence. And part of that is these that when people uh, have partners who have a higher prevalence pool, whether that's because a younger person having older partners or, you know, for any reason that sort of perpetuates the, this increased, uh, you know, transmission. And I think that that sort of racial discrimination is, is partially what shapes these the racial composition of these of these networks. And then the last thing I'll say is that the the discrimination and I do hear this talked about to some extent differently in different communities of men that we work with in Atlanta. But the anti HIV stigma comes in in really insidious ways. And and I I remember um, these these data are all sort of anonymized and de-identified and. And in qualitative work, we we have procedures in place so that we can share some of the individual stories and experiences in a way that doesn't compromise people's confidentiality. But I remember a qualitative interview from a man who had uh, been gotten a prep prescription, had stopped taking it, and had subsequently gotten um, infected with HIV. And one of the barriers for him was he was sort of his housing was. Um, uh, a little transitional. He couch surfed sometimes mm -hmm. and he was hesitant to bring the whole bottle of pills with him because it could be seen in his pocket. And, and we hear again and again that when people see like the little blue pill, like one of the branded, the earliest branded pill for prep, um, that if people see you with that, they would assume you're living with HIV rather than you're taking a medication to prevent it. And so this fear of being perceived as being, as living with HIV that becomes an impediment to taking the medication that could actually protect you. So I think uh, like all these, these sorts of ways that people experience stigma, that that's the anti-HIV stigma. There's sort of a, a racial stigma around perceptions of, you know, prevalence, for example, and then there's anti-gay stigma. And I'll, I'll tell you one more little story again from a qualitative interview of um, someone who said he got the prescription, lived at home and a parent said to him, you don't need to take that. You're not that kind of guy. Wow. And he uh, sort of acquiesced to that, you know, and, and he said later, like, that was a really affirming thing that my, my parent was saying something, you know, caring about me uh, and it felt affirming. And so I, and he said, I knew better, but I accepted that. And he went on not to take prep and he went on to um, acquire HIV. Wow. And so like on all these levels, these stigmas interact to the detriment of our health as, as gay and bisexual people. And I, you know, I think it, it's a, it's, it is a career's work to try and untangle. And, and, you know, you, you do like really important work in this, like a number of us are committed to this as a theme, but just how you disentangle and then how we help all the people who come in contact, you know, with, with the people that we're trying to serve 
whether that's parents, employers, roommates, you know, bosses, coworkers, like how do we make those changes that that break down these stigmas and help people understand how our actions, the things that we say, the th- the ways that we perceive actually create detrimental health effects for others. So, you know, that was my next question, right? My next question was going to be, Patrick, what, Yeah. you know, maybe some examples of the work that your team is doing to change those attitudes or experiences of stigma and also what you want the listeners to do to be part of, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, this is a really huge question, but you, you talked about stigma towards um, gay and bisexual men, towards HIV, uh, racism. So I guess, you know, wh- wh- what are the solutions? Because I feel, mm-hmm. you know, obviously they're deeply entrenched in society and our families, religion, culture, laws, et cetera. <laughs> but I, I guess, you know, I've, I've been to your, your center and, and you're doing so much amazing work. And then I'm, I know you also have these ideas about what what the listeners, maybe they're walking their dog, maybe they're a healthcare provider, maybe they're a researcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like this this area of stigma reduction is one that's hard scientifically as a primary kind of intervention. And I know that people are working on it and I, I with all like, mm-hmm. and have great respect for like tackling, like how do you actually <clears throat> deliver short messages? There's, um, I know that the Gilead, the Gilead Compass Initiative, which I, have the privilege of working with quite a bit over the last three years. One of the centers for that, the Southern AIDS Coalition, actually put out grants to help community organizations develop short messages that might be on billboards or might be in tweets or just sort of short stigma reduction messages. And I think we need to be thinking about the whole gamut of like, how do we reach people in social media, like these forms? How is this woven into entertainment? For example, and I I remember um, can't remember the name of the the show honestly, but um, a show that introduced an older care as we were seeing more sort of new HIV diagnoses and older gay men. A show introduced a character um, who had been a character for a season or two, and then it sort of came out later that he was a gay man and and he got diagnosed with HIV. So trying to think about through social media, through the way we tell stories, I think was it Pose? Hmm? Was that on Pose? I love that show. Uh, no, I, 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 it may be older than that. I'm, I'm trying to think um, how to get away with murder had a really like great story about a discordant H- HIV couple in PrEP, for example. Oh. So I think there are ways to weave in some messages and, and destigmatize. I think right now we have a tremendous opportunity with U equals U to start to destigmatize uh, some of the, the anti-HIV stigma. And could, you, could you break that down, what U equals U is? Yeah. It, um, it's undetectable equals untransmittable. So now, based on data from multiple studies of different sorts, we now understand that when people have a suppressed viral load where the virus is it's so low in the body that it can't be detected, that um, those that people living with HIV with that state of viral, viral suppression are incapable of transmitting HIV. And so that means if the viral load is undetectable, then the virus is untransmittable which is E equals U. And I think this is so fundamental to the destigmatization of people living with HIV and just really should reset our, our clock about, you know, how we talk about these things. And I've, I've really pivoted my own language 
uh, and I'll just acknowledge, you know, I, I'm a work in progress, but I really came and worked in, in a surveillance office at, at the federal government, pretty far distant from people living with HIV, where we talked about people being HIV positive and HIV negative. I think even that language has evolved rightly. And I think U equals U pushes us towards that to talk about people living with HIV. Like we talk about people living with diabetes or living with, with, with a cancer or history of cancer, mm -hmm. that it's a more descriptive way that is not so dichotomous. You know, I think that's one, one important piece is just how we talk about, about people who are living with HIV. So, totally. and then, you know, in terms of stigmatization, I think that also we talked a little bit about about prep stigma, and I do think that like when we when we started out with prep, there were I have pictures of of some like uh, t-shirts that that used a a word to describe uh, gay men who take prep um, in unflattering terms, which I won't repeat on the podcast, but I, I'll just say that that people. Uh, initially, there was a discussion within the gay community, which, you know, I'm disappointed in our in our people, you know, in my people <laughs> that we would would say like, oh, well, if you're taking prep, that must mean that you're a promiscuous person, that, that mm. like sort of equation. So that discounts people who may have chosen to be in a monogamous relationship with a who, with a person who's living with HIV. Like, is that person promiscuous? Is that person, you know, protecting himself? Yeah. So I think the 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 counter narrative that's coming out around this is that we see in research studies and we see in qualitative interviews is, is the opposite is just the empowerment, like the empowerment that people feel when they're taking steps to protect themselves. And then they, they then realize how all these layers of negative messaging, shaming, um, fear about our health were actually weighing on, you know, them as people and on the way they, they um, express their sexuality. So I think that the counter narrative to that is that that prep isn't a mark of promiscuity or shame, it, it has become a really empowering um, tool for people to en enjoy their sexual lives and do so without um, without this worry. So I, I do think that interventions, as we have them, can help reshape this re reshape this stigma. And then, like I recently caught up with a friend who I had known uh, decades ago, and he's one of those like so Facebook somehow decides that you might know someone and you're like, yes, like, how did you creepy? But yes. <laughs> and um, a friend who like, when we talked disclosed that he was living with HIV and had been um, for a long time. And so I think that again, all the advances that we have increasingly, not the Facebook advances, but the medical advances in, in, in the understanding of the, the HIV as an infectious process and how we can manage it opens up conversations. And so I really, I'm always deeply appreciative when someone shares with me or shares in a, a public setting that they're living with HIV and can bring their sort of story to that, I, I think goes a long way towards reducing some of this stigma. I think that's that's a really good point. I want to highlight that for the listeners is that it's an honor when someone discloses their sexual orientation, yeah. they're not straight <laughs> or mm -hmm. gender identity and and their HIV status. That, that means that, that someone's thinking you're a a trustworthy person who who will value that information. Yeah. Yeah. And how we and how we react to that, you know, I think also goes a long way towards um, validating and totally. 
and and helping create positive experience and supportive experiences for people. So I really I feel like I did a big ten minute dodge of your question, but but <laughs> no, you, you gave a ton of I think you gave a lot of information that I think is really important to consider how we react if someone tells us they're on prep. Right. Rather than thinking it's around promiscuity or that promiscuity is bad, being sex positive and also being like, right. that's great. You're taking care of your health, how we react when someone tells us they're positive or you're living with HIV or I think just being ready for anybody to tell you that they're living with HIV and not have to act surprised or 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 upset if you know that people can live a long life. You know, I, I think that's a really these are really good seeds, I think, to plant so that we're ready when people right. might tell us things about themselves. And I also want to come back to your original question, which I still think I'm just going to put out to, to listeners who may, who may be working in this field or who may be thinking about, um, you know, how this impacts our communities, that the challenge of, of reducing stigma, whether it's around race or whether it's around HIV status or whether it's around PrEP taking status, these are scientifically really hard you know, really hard um, needles to move. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, my, so just to put a little bit more of a wrapper around some of the things I was trying to say that I, I, I do think that education is important in the process of stigma reduction. I think that outing ourselves and whatever our stigmatized identities are uh, is important. And I think, you know, if maybe funders listen to your uh, podcast. So uh, like the, our Canadian health funders, our NIH health funders that hopefully like it is like <laughs> we aspire to um, cure cancer. We aspire to put people on the moon. We aspire to create a COVID vaccine, you know, in nine months. And these are things that take a lot of resources, but the payoffs are tremendous. And so I just want to say as an advocate for the science of stigma reduction, that these are hard things to um, to address, either to mitigate how people perceive others based on these sort of um, characteristics or how we react and are internalized, you know, what we've absorbed from how we've grown up and what we've heard about ourselves and people like us. These are really tough things to unlock, but we cannot as scientists um, say the best we can do is education or like this isn't a case where people just, we just want people to be better people. There, there's mm -hmm. like, there's scientists. And again, you, like you do work in this area and, and all respect like uh, for tackling this particular thing. And it starts with how do we measure it? Is it one thing or is it five different things? Like, how is it experienced? How is it mitigated? And that's what builds towards, you know, if you think about the people being on the moon or, or cancers that are curable or a COVID vaccine, the reason we got to a COVID vaccine so fast is because of decades of investment in the tools and understanding the processes. And there were adenovirus vectors that were sitting there that had been studied in HIV vaccines. There were mRNA approaches that have been used. This stuff didn't just get whipped up, you know, in the kitchen starting on day one, like it built on decades of investments. And it, and it built on an urgency and a commitment of money and people, right? Like a whole focus of the world on solving one problem right? that has not right. been dedicated at all to racism and HIV right. stigma Thank and you. LGBT stigma. The whole world has never been like, we need, this is an urgent health issue. We all need to work together, you know? <laughs> so, so I think you're, I think you're talking about both sort of leadership advocacy, but also funding 
for the research that is going to be the scientific basis for how we do this. And in the meantime, you know, I think there's incremental science around the potential mechanisms of un unlocking or undoing these stigmas. And there's sort of empiricism, which is, you know, again, the Southern AIDS Coalition sponsoring community-based organizations to try messages on a billboard, on a, you know, radio, on a, you know, tweet. And so there's a little bit of an empirical approach, but, uh, you know, I hope in 50 years, the people who are doing like mind sync podcasts where they don't even have to connect <laughs> to the internet, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about how decades of investment in like a scientific approach to understanding. And, and I think there's also the scientific approach has a, an effect of legitimizing this field, the work that, that you and others do around um, this builds an evidence base and takes it from, you know, what might be perceived as like a harder to capture, a harder mm. to measure part of human experience. I'll just say like we can measure someone's blood sugar and say like, that's too high. Like we got drugs that can make that lower. Um, but, but the ability to measure is the ability to um, measure intervention. And, and I think again, moves this from a, and if this is ever taken out of context, it'll feel very bad, but like that it's not a someone's feelings are hurt or that they're, you know, they're, they're, they heard something that they didn't want to, that these are real mm -hmm. processes that affect our mental health, that can affect our physical, you know, well-being um, experiences of discrimination, whether they're verbal, whether they're physical um, and, and in all their dimensions. And so just that, that research that helps us to measure and then to measure intervention. So how will we know mm -hmm. if we've um, intervened in mm -hmm. a way that lessens the, the negative health impacts of stigma on a person? Like, how will we know that? We, we can, can measure their experience of it, but how do we correlate that with are there biologic markers? Are there, you know, screening tools? Anyway, so the science of this is just fascinating, um, but hard and needs to be supported. I love that you just gave us so many things to, to think about. You gave scientists some things to think about. You gave people who may not be scientists, something to think about and how they understand and learn about U equals U and PrEP and how we talk about uh, sex and HIV and, and other things. And also people who are living in rural areas to think about looking up your services if they need some confidential services. Okay, so before we end, I want to ask you some wild card questions. Really quick. Oh boy. <laughs> Are you up for okay. it? All right. Yeah, I'm up for it. What's your karaoke song? Uh, I Will Survive. Oh, good. I love that song. All right. I was wondering, do you want a definition or do you want an example? Uh, what is an example? That's good. Some people yes. I ask and they, they don't have a karaoke song. So then I have to come up with another question. I, I have to say I have a runner up. Um, oh, tell us. It's from, from Aladdin, A Whole New World. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> which, is, uh, which is a reference in time and space that, um, but yes, uh, but also relates to our work, right? Nice, yes. We come around these corners of science and it's a whole new world. Oh, I like that. This could be the name of the podcast, not sure yet, but that is <laughs> a potential one. Second question is, imagine there's no COVID or we're in a... Uh, entirely vaccinated world of COVID and you can go anywhere in the world with anyone you want for dinner. Who do you take and where do you go? Oh my. Um, I, uh, 
<clears throat> would like to get my whole um, kind of extended family together because we are in um, we live in different states and we live in different states of risk and we live in different states of um, uh, you know, I, I think how we interact with the virus in our lives. Um, and so we've been quite socially distanced. And I would like to go to a, a place. Uh, I grew up in Tennessee. <clears throat> I have very fond memories, both of my family and with my friends, of a, a place called Cades Cove, which is an, a part of the, the no, national, um, yeah, you know, the National Park Service, um, to a place called Greenbrier. Um, and and even though we could eat indoors, um, I'd like to have a big picnic basket and sit on the rocks at Greenbrier, but with no need for masks. Um, and we will get to that time. Nice. Um, even though we're outdoors. And just sort of removes the barriers of place and health state and vaccination state and uh, beliefs in prevention modalities uh, that in many ways um, just sort of serve as one more way to divide us. You know, I think um, Mm. and uh, and drop all that stuff and just wear our flip flops, our shorts, our T-shirts and uh, have a picnic basket. That's amazing. I've never, I actually meant to ask you where you're from. So this, you, you kind of got two questions at once. That is amazing. Um, and there's one last question. Is there any advice, <clears throat> quotation, words of wisdom you've received that you want to share with the listener? Um, <clears throat> that's a great, um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, my most influential mentor by far was the major professor for my um, my my doctoral dissertation. And uh, at the time I was in vet school, uh, I had finished vet school uh, by the time I was working full time. <clears throat> and the two things I was sure of was that I, I didn't want to practice veterinary medicine because I finished my veterinary degree. I didn't want to practice and I didn't want to teach. And uh, my major professor, whose name is Dr. Ted McDonald, um, <clears throat> said, um, you know, I, I'm going to um, make you teach and I'm going to highly encourage you to practice. Uh, and so I did both. Um, and I turned out to love teaching and I turned out um, to like practice quite a lot. And I actually continued to do veterinary practice when I worked at CDC. I worked at, did emergency practice up until we had adopted our son. <clears throat> and so wow. I don't, it's not quite pithy. Um, but it's uh, not um, putting ourselves in boxes too early in our careers. And it's the idea mm-hmm. that, um, that looking for these diverse kinds of ways to use our skills uh, is, a, is a worthwhile thing to do. So I would just say like, especially for people earlier in their careers, not to shut off the idea that, um, that you might be a teacher at some point and, you, and, you, and there are different ways to do that or that you may be more of a mm-hmm. mentor kind of person than a classroom teacher kind of person, um, or um, that there may be some aspects of, of practice. So I, I just, I always go back to that because of how definitively I felt about those things and how completely wrong I was. Um, and as a, as a um, person, uh, you know, as a lifelong learner, I hope um, that we have people we respect enough um, to, to say like, okay, I'm going to do that because you told me I should, and I trust you. And I know you have my best interests at heart. So 
I will send this to Dr. McDonald, um, who, who's still, Amazing. the other thing, I, the other great thing about him is for years into my work, although I worked in a, on a bench science in, in megakaryocyte development, and he was a basic scientist and a physiologist, that he followed my publications online and would send me an email that says, like, I see that you published this. And really going from, again, like how megakaryocytes develop and how platelet, you know, platelet formation is governed hormonally to looking at analyses of surveillance data on transmissions in gay and bisexual men and AIDS rates, but always interested and, and like uh, hope that I can be that kind of mentor um, that I'm still follow when I'm retired, that I'm still have a good, now it would be a Google scholar search on, on my mentees and reach out to them and say, um, I don't understand all this cool stuff you're doing, but I think this is great. Or I have these questions and um and that's inspiring to me. I'll, I'll actually tear up over that, but it's a podcast and you can't see just like the people who've invested in us um, and mm. mentored us and brought us to where we are. Um, I guess that's the pithy. I guess that's a pithy saying is that at least once a year, um, think back to someone who's helped you in a formative way, be who you are and where you are and, um, and write them a thank you note. That's so beautiful. And, I think about that a lot because sometimes it just feels so busy in say in academia that people don't necessarily celebrate your successes. Mm -hmm. And so even at our wedding, my wife and I, we were like, one of the things we said, we'll always celebrate each other's successes. Oh, you got an article accepted. Yay. You got a grant or you got, you released an album. But what you said is like, wow, to do that also for um, the people we mentor to notice and to celebrate their successes. Cause I think you're right. Like the, the reaching out and saying, Hey, I, I see what you're doing and you're, you're still rising and, and, you know, on this interesting journey that that's really, so we should, uh, appreciate our mentors and then and then the people that were men mentoring yeah. we can remember to celebrate them I think I I'm gonna wonderful. I'm gonna spend an hour today doing that in fact if, if anybody gets an email say like I got an email a month ago from you and I wondered why then I'll send them this podcast and they'll, if they listen all the way to the end they'll know where it came from so listeners reach out to someone who's mentored you and someone you're mentoring and send some appreciation celebration you know that's that's great patrick you're so inspiring thank you so much for joining thank us thank you today. so much this was this was great and uh
Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Don't listen, but I tell you.